folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, producer of the show. Hey, thrilled to have you here with us today. So many fun things going on. Ian's got a brand new book, of course, The Story of You, that's up for pre-sale right now. To find out more about that, you can go to ianmorgancron.com slash the story of you. And uh, you can even order it for pre-sale there and get a bunch of goodies for doing so. And also, something that you have been asking for for a while now, and that is an introductory course into the Enneagram. Well, Ian is releasing a brand new introductory course to the Enneagram this year. It's called Discovering You, an Introduction to the Enneagram. And this course is for anyone who wants to understand the Enneagram and themselves better. It's also a really great way for you to share with your family and friends who aren't interested in reading a book. With this course, you get a complete overview of the Enneagram and the different personality types it contains so you can better identify which one you might be and what that means for your personal and spiritual growth. The course releases in November, but if you join the wait list, you'll get an exclusive access to an upcoming free live training and a one-time only discounted launch price. So join the wait list now at typologyinstitute.com forward slash waitlist. That's typologyinstitute.com slash waitlist. We have a great guest today, John Driver. He is an award-winning writer and collaborator of more than 25 books, a former history teacher from University of Tennessee. And his newest project is Not So Black and White, an invitation to honest conversations about race and faith. So we cover a lot of ground in this podcast. I know you're going to enjoy it. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now without any further ado, here is the host you've been waiting for, Ian Cron. John Driver, Counterphobic 6, author of the new book, not so black and white invitation to honest conversation about race and faith. Welcome to Typology. So glad to be here. Man, we are pumped. This is going to be a rich conversation. Mm-hmm. So you are familiar with the Enneagram, and uh, I want to know a little bit about your journey with it. Okay. <laughs> well, I was uh, highly resistant, mm. uh, and it was my wife that... Uh, that brought me along. There's this uh, phenomenon in my life uh, that she's always right. And I know that sounds cliche, but in my case, I don't right. think it's true for everyone, but in my case, it really is true. It's, it's amazing and, and infuriating. Uh, but she began reading up on the Enneagram and uh, she's a two. And, um, and she began to tell me, Oh, you should, you should take a look at this. And I did all of the classic resistances that, you know, I'm, I'm no expert, but I mean, what right. I've read, there's a lot of resistances of, well, you can't put me in a box, you know, I'm a pastor and a writer. So I feel like I'm pretty in touch. You know, we're a very feelings centered family. You know, we, a lot of articulation and expression of what we're thinking and kind of thought I knew, uh, who I was on the inside and man, was I wrong? Um, and there was so much. In fact, I've also been through, a, you know, 12 step recovery journey, uh, in the last five years, in addition to the Enneagram. And I remember um, I listened to a podcast and about counterphobic sixes that she asked me to listen to. And I came in, I was mowing the yard, and I was like, oh my goodness, this absolutely is me. And it just began a journey. Uh, and your podcast is one of the first things I listened to. In fact, in your book was the first book I read on the Enneagram. 
and it was illuminating and mm. not just in mm. in what was going on in me but to begin to see the people around me differently as well and and to begin to explore my marriage and of course my ministry and and, and I think just expounding that idea that people are not all you know good or bad or introverts and extroverts but there's a whole lot more nuance and layers mm. to what's going on inside of people and it's uh I have so far to go, but it's a journey that I'm on and excited to be on because it, it's illuminated things I really needed to see and I just couldn't see. So what role did anxiety play in your resistance? Well, you know, as a counterphobic, uh, the thing I was most, I guess, insulted by was the idea that I was motivated by fear. Mm-hmm. It was truly... Because uh, I consider myself a very courageous person. In fact, we laugh. I think you know that I grew up a three because I, I lived and I was the student council president and the full ride to college and just accomplish, accomplish, accomplish at every turn. And we laugh because my wife and her three wing. We kind of I, I felt like two threes got married, hmm. you know, in their early twenties. Is what it sort of feels like because we were living in those places of life because she's a, quite accomplished and. Um, so because I'd always, you know, I always strived to overcome that fear. It was, in fact, that was probably the main thing that held me back. And she was like, yeah, you know, I read it and motivated by fear and obviously anxiety, fear. I think how you say it is something like, you know, fear is an active danger. Anxiety is just forecasting the danger and in some way it could happen. Uh, never thought of myself. Everyone thought I was a super positive uh, guy. And so when I would read some of those lists and it would say, Oh, you know, you're constantly thinking of what could go wrong. You know, that didn't resonate at first with me, but I think in your thirties and forties, you begin to have maybe a more clear viewpoint of really what motivates you not just what your behavior is. And I began to see it played a huge role, um, that I've constantly lived my life trying to, um, put boundaries around all that could go wrong and not just for me, but for people around me, especially. Mm -hmm. Um, and the loyalist side of that fit like a glove. (laughs) I mean, all that made perfect sense. But when I really began to understand the fear side, um, it it is, it's to this day opening up things that I'm still working on. Like it shows me where to invite, uh, something higher than me into my life because I'm not, I'm not able to do enough prep I'm not able to do enough in my life to stop all of those things. Um, and I'm out of control. And so when I embraced that fear was motivation, I lost control mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was all an illusion anyway. I didn't actually have it, but that's what I thought I had all of these years because all the, the trappings around me and all the good works and all the accomplishments, you know, were for security. That's what mm-hmm. I was really going for. Interesting. So, uh, just to kind of take a sideways, uh, step we're both in 12-step recovery right me for uh drug and alcohol addiction don't need to reveal to us what yours is but uh, the question i have for you is you know fear plays such a role in the life of addicts you know like there's a whole there's a bunch of sections of the big book man it's all about the role of fear the role of resentment right but fear plays a really big part in fact Anthony, just the other day, I was driving right down here, down Ninth Avenue, and I said to myself, you know, I'm, because I was going through something with somebody, and I, I just had this feeling, I was like, you know, I am so tired of being afraid. 
like just going through life afraid. And, I, and but for different reasons than a six would, right? For, for different reasons. But, you know, fear runs uh, through the lives of lots of addicts. And I'm wondering what connection, if any, you've made between recovery and your Enneagram type. Like, how has it helped you? Or, like, have you thought about that oh, relationship? absolutely. Yeah, tell folks about it. Yeah, I think the Enneagram showed me that I was wrong about who I thought I was. Mm. And that that was really good news. Mm. That I didn't need to be, in, I didn't need to be insulted or insecure about the idea that what what I thought I knew about myself it's not that it was all a lie I knew elements of it and I think getting into be into motivations versus behaviors because again I'm, I'm a third generation pastor so um, I'm a wonderful father grandfather but the traditions that you know, I, I think I was not even just raised in, but it's less about someone telling me this in my home and more about the environments mm-hmm. that we run in. Um, they really do focus on what you do. And the Enneagram brought me to a place of, and, and that affects how I see God and all kinds of things. So for my whole life, I can theologically exegete about grace and all these things. Mm-hmm. But in my heart of hearts, I really feel like God doesn't like me that much. Mm. I mean, I, I wouldn't express, I mean, he likes others, but you know, there was that, and I'm not afraid to say what I'm in recovery for, you know, it, it's, you know, I'm a recovering Pharisee in every way, not the kind that you think of who just sits around and judges everybody harshly, uh, more the kind who felt that, um, what God could offer me was not quite enough. Like he needed, he needed me to add to it mm. with the accomplishment and, and, and with being good enough, uh, which is equally Phariseeism in, in terms of like a always not being enough, mm-hmm. uh, not resting in grace, not resting and trusting that it's okay. And, and again, it's almost like if in Christian terms, grace is enough for heaven, but the rest on earth is up to me. Mm-hmm. And so love is what God has to do for me, but he doesn't like me very well unless I perform. And so, um, and being a father that I see that's not how it is. And so the Enneagram really, to answer your question, illuminated, um, I think, a lot of faulty thinking towards myself. It also got me outside of the idea that looking inward was somehow narcissism or, you know, there's a a lot of movements in the Christian world of uh, stop looking in so much and look out. And Mm -hmm. I realized there's a lot of rooms inside of me I've never invited my faith into because I didn't know they existed. So Enneagram was like a key to that door. And then when I got into recovery, specifically, um, by the time I got to step four into inventory, which is the hardest step, and which um, lots of people in the Christian world reject that step. When, when you begin to, I, mean, I was a youth pastor for 15 years, and we had a really large youth ministry. Uh, lots of kids came through, and we were very relational, very active, taking them all over the world. Um, and when that season ended, and I mean, I did 50 weddings after that, you know, it was just a constant thing. I'm reevaluating all the things that, that I taught them, <laughs> things I didn't know to teach them that I'm learning now. And when I begin to, in my inventory or in my confession, even as a pastor, and I do this a lot, say, hey, I, I fear maybe that inadvertently you guys might have been more secure in the love of Pastor John than you were in God. Because 
as much as I told you about his love, I stayed in motion. I was the guy always performing, and, and, and lots of kids, I think, felt that need to live up to that as, as again, to gain God's affection. Mm-hmm. So, But when I begin that confession, there's almost always a, oh, you didn't mean anything by it. Oh, don't be so hard on yourself. Oh, you've been forgiven. And they don't realize they're rejecting a confession because, well, one, they're involved in that story. And if you take off, and I got to be careful, you know, I don't want to remove the the rose colored hue of childhood from people. Right. Like, hey, it was good. It wasn't all bad. All those things. But at the end of the in the end of the day, they assume I'm feeling condemned by confessing the things of my past, and that's what steps one, two, and three did. And the enneagram again unlocks this idea to go, hey, I'm not condemned. This is okay to look at these things. And now I'm dealing with them so I can understand my patterns and I can understand where I've come from and how I've looked at the world, how I've seen my story in the past. And it's okay. Like, it, it's just okay. It removes that stigma mm-hmm. and that condemnation from it to say it's all right to look there uh, so that I can move forward differently. You can't move forward unless you go into the shadow. I agree. There is absolutely no way. Mm-hmm. And what's ironic is... Um, that who who's waiting for us in the shadow mm. right yeah god god is waiting for has been waiting for us in the shadow yeah. and that that doesn't mean that the work isn't difficult it's just not lonely yeah. if it's done correctly right and there I, last night anthony i went to a lecture on spirituality and recovery and um, one of the people said something really stuck with me. They turned to the audience and they said something like, you know, God is still interested in you. Mm, wow. And I, it kind of threw me back, right? That God is still, like God, you know, I think sadly so many people, whether they're conscious of it or not, have kind of given up on themselves. You know what I mean? It's like, man, I've been stuck in these patterns for so long. I've done everything I know how to get myself out of them. But the truth of the matter is I've basically given up on myself. Hmm. And the idea that God is still interested in you is kind of moving, right? It's it's rather affecting, you know? I think that that some of the Christians who may not consider themselves addicts, quote-unquote, and there's all that stigma around recovery even— I always tell my friends, like, you know, my sin of pride and, and even my fear of not trusting God uh, is on the list of things that he hates. <laughs> and my friends who are drug addicts, yours is not even on his list in terms of it didn't make it. Didn't make it you know, like, Jesus never mentioned Coca. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so like, but we reverse that stigma. Like, yeah. oh, it's, yeah, it's okay. Right. It's totally. okay. These are acceptable right. things. Yeah. These are normal. And to your point, I think that we're just as enslaved yeah. as believers often by that very thing. I don't feel that my father or my shepherd is as motivated about my recovery or my redemption as I am. So it's all up to me. Mm-hmm. And when I think that was what changed for me when I felt pursued, uh, that, bef- you know, these ideas of, they sound so like, like a worship song. So we don't want to do them, you know, that we, we, we put them in cliche places, but when it really became, and I have to challenge myself, I have to read these daily sort of declarations I write to myself every day. Cause I default every morning. It seems like I wake up, I don't disbelieve in God anymore, but I go back to the pattern of, oh, this is going to be up to me today. Mm-hmm. And he must be a little disappointed unless I pray enough or do this enough. And I have to be reminded, like, before I ever woke up, 
like he was way more interested in my safety. And, and when I put my daughter to bed at night and when she's been scared in her life, I'll say, listen, it is my job to worry about your safety tonight. Like I've already wired all the windows. I have weapons in the house. I've locked all the doors and, and tr trust me, if you're worried about it, I'm 10 times more prepared for what you're worried. Mm -hmm. So you can rest and taking that and realizing, well, that's really what God, I mean, it, it's not just a sermon. That's really what God feels over me. And I think asking yourself, if you really believe that, what will be the life in Christ? Like that is the, that's the journey of the disciple. It's not just resisting all of the temptations and, and making sure you don't take certain substances and making sure you say the right things and making sure you go to church. Like the hard life in Christ is really believing the gospel because it's that radical of, oh, I'm actually pursued. Um, so I spend, you know, we, I spend my days now. That's the challenge. It's no longer just resisting all the bad, but like, do I really believe mm -hmm. in, in the grace that's that radical? Yeah. I, Someone once asked me on a podcast um, to reduce the gospel down to a phrase or a sentence. Mm. And I just said, you are loved. Yeah. I took more heat for that than I would care to tell you about, <laughs> you know, on like Twitter and like Insta, you know, not Instagram, but, you know, Facebook. It's mm. like, you know, there was all this. I said, and everything. Oh, and I know what I did. I said, you are loved and everything else is editorial. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I got, wow. you know, it's almost like it disappointed people. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I was like, man, yeah. I'm sorry, but, you know, I think my view is, is at, at least largely correct. Right. If, you know, uh, but, you know, however people want to run with it, that's fine. So, um, you know, it's interesting that a lot of counterphobic sixes do have trouble self-identifying as counterphobic sixes in the beginning because their tendency is to think they're eights, yeah. right? Because there's um, all this power and this go up against power uh, and energy. It's this, um, you know, it's aggression, right? The difference is that for the counterphobic six, they don't know they're afraid. The eight isn't afraid. <laughs> right. The counterphobic six doesn't know that what's motivating the aggression is fear, mm -hmm. right? So talk to me about that dynamic. Like, how did you figure it out, right? That, like, was there a moment you went, it's fear, it's anxiety? Well, I think, and that's an interesting question to pinpoint the moment. Um, one is this confession. You guys said this light would bring out our souls. So when, <laughs> when I discovered that there was a counterphobic six, it gave me a less shameful way to identify. Mm. Because counterphobic sounds super cool. You know? <laughs> like, you know, it's like, oh my gosh. You know, I, I, I attack what makes me afraid. I, so I had that. It was still pride. But it was the ability to, to go, okay, I can accept the fear because here's the deal. I never let it sit without me going after it with punch. So it, it had that same sort of aggression right. towards the fear, though. I, I knew what it was. If I look back over my life, absolutely fear has been motivating factor certainly in people pleasing another thing i'm in recovery for um that need for the approval uh that i don't, I don't know how that ever completely goes away but it, it has to be put into the right place when i begin to identify that not just as oh i like everyone thinks of me as a peacemaker and oh you know i have no enemies like I, there was a day in life i guess i really have no enemies because i need resolution instantaneously if there's a problem and some of that was really good 
t- taking some good things from scripture and I mean, applying them like, Hey, I do not go to bed angry with anybody. Like, you know, it's, it's a constant peacemaking. Uh, since I've become healthier, I, I probably do have people who consider me their enemy, though I don't like that because I have become stronger in saying, Hey, this is what I think we need to do. I mean, I can lead a little stronger in that and I can be at peace with everyone not being at peace mm-hmm. with me a yeah. little more. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that was it. It was, it was the moment where I realized, okay, what you're doing all this time is fighting against a pattern of fear, uh, whether it's with people in, in ministry, whether it's with even my wife, um, coming to a realization, I think in the triads, especially that I was, a, I'm a head and she's a heart and how I needed instantaneous resolution. I was the I'm the kind of guy, and it drives her crazy. I'm the kind of guy that we can be in, a, and we don't have a lot of big fights, but we've been married 21 years this month. And at times, if we're super animated. We're both very, um, what's the word here, articulate or stubborn, able to argue our case. Neither one of us loses unless it's on purpose. You know, like right. we could have kept going. And I'm the kind of guy, though, if if in the middle of this heated moment, if she can make a logical point that shows me where I'm wrong, and this is how another way I knew this about me, immediately I repent and I'm fine. And I go, oh, yeah, oh, well, crap. No, I'm, you know what, you're right, I'm so sorry. And I, I go from 100 down to zero, and she's like, hey, you know, I don't downshift quite that fast. You, <laughs> you just said a whole lot of hurtful things. But for me, it was like, oh, so and understanding that she feels first and logic comes second. You know, she has to takes her time to put, you know, an articulation mentally to the things that she's feeling. So it, it really began to, it, it, it repeatedly, because I often thought am I three um, because of that achievement sort of, I still have that. I still want sure. to accomplish. And the eight, you know, I just, I think for me, I, I do fight against the things uh, that I feel like are, un, are unjust, but I'm I'm super loyal if a system, especially if a system or a person seems safe, and that's the word I have to put with it, if they seem safe and um, that they're in the right spot with their ideology, their leadership, their heart's in the right place, if I perceive that, it's really hard to get rid of me. You know, I mean, like, I've been at the same church for 18 years now, you know, Super six, though. (laughs) And the danger is, right, for an unhealthy Mm -hmm. six, particularly counterphobic sixes, is um because they're not very aware around their anxiety they will blindly follow someone who promises safety and we've seen a pattern of this in recent years right or even in just you know across the political spectrum you know everything's about fear and of course what does that do well it corrals people into groupthink and then they corral into what we might call epistemic cocoons, right? They're just locked into this silo where everyone's just massaging each other's pre-existing biases and beliefs. Nothing else is allowed to get in. And, you know, I hate to say it, but sixes are particularly vulnerable to this because anxiety, whether they're phobic or counterphobic, is so prevalent that the moment someone says, I can keep you safe, the the very unhealthy six will follow them in a trance-like way right off the cliff and actually be defending craziness, crazy behavior all the way off the cliff because they have tethered their security to that person 
and the anxiety it would cause them to realize that person isn't safe is too much, right? So again, people, you know, uh, I think when you have that awareness, you can begin to live with more critical thinking, right? But man, nothing motivates the human person like fear. You know, it's interesting when earlier when you were talking, I was reminded of this. This is something that Sarah the Barge said that uh, was on our show, and she is a hardcore six. And uh, you said, I, I couldn't identify with the fear because I considered myself a courageous person. And she said uh, that a lot of her friends would always call her brave, and she makes this distinction. She says, I'm not brave because bravery is the ability to confront danger without feeling fear, and courage is acting in the face of danger in spite of the fear. Mm. So something was interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's the presence of courage doesn't mean you're not afraid. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Just watch Lord of the Rings. Right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's sort of a wonderful illustration of that of yeah. that idea. All right, you've written a new book, Not So Black and White: Invitation to Honest Conversation About Race and Faith. This is an example of a counterphobic six going uh, conquering fear and running into a conversation that is frightening, um, is intimidating, is um, controversial uh, and difficult and particularly in the sadly particularly in the the world of faith right in in the contemporary world you'd think that people would do a better job of actually wanting to engage the topic rather than finding a tribe uh, and um, siloing off right so tell me tell me about the book tell me how it came to be and how you think being a counterphobic six inspired you or helped you or hindered you in the process of writing it? So when you look at authority, people in my life who you talk about ascribing to a person or to a tribe that makes you feel safe, you know, I think maybe the counterphobic part of me actually causes me to constantly test them, mm-hmm. reevaluate yes. them and hold them to a standard. Mm-hmm. I look for all, that's the other part of my six is that I, I look for all the things that could be, and I value logic and I value honesty. Um, so this is an issue. What's so crazy about it is before recovery, there's no way I write this book. Before the Enneagram and looking in, I, there's no way 10 years ago I write this book. Mm. Um, it's, I always consider myself, I mean, I'm a history major uh, and my my graduate degree was in curriculum and instruction, so I was a history teacher in public school and uh, went to a public university, went to the University of Tennessee, so didn't do the you know traditional seminary path, end up in ministry, end up as a writer. Um, and I always, because of that history knowledge, considered myself someone who hates racism, and I would teach you know against it in, in, you know, in terms of our history. And so I think that that would have created for me before recovery principles, before a little more introspection and honesty with myself, it would have created what a lot of people are feeling today. And that's this almost false shroud of who I perceive myself to be versus what I'm actually doing in this space. So if you would have asked me, absolutely, I'm not a racist. And then the number one thing we talk about in this book is people's as a pastor and people I talk to, they're like, I'm just so sick of everyone calling me a racist in this conversation. And sometimes I'll ask them like, hey, who actually called you a racist? Can you name them? Well, and they usually can't. 
usually someone in their tribe is telling them that you're being called a racist. If you engage any sort of social justice issue, um, we've been dubbed woke. Now we've been dubbed liberal. I mean, man, you, you drop liberal. I mean, it is a conversation ender because of the fear. Uh, and now socialist or social Marxist or all these things. And we, we just kind of, for me, there's, again, everything is, is broken down logically for me. And when the gospel became clear to me, I have a long ways to go, but there was clearly a disposition to a disciple that's evident in Scripture. And what I began to see, even as a pastor, when our church was much larger and we were way more program-based and and works-based, we had a lot more people. Our church right now is a lot smaller. And we've lost people over this. Oh, I bet you have. And not all only on this. I mean, maybe I just suck as a pastor, and that's okay. I'm, I'm at peace with that, you know. But the 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 level of life change in a rec, more of a recovery based place where those principles are being taught week in week out, um, the level of life change is 400 percent more in the number of people we have of who's really being experiencing freedom from things in their life that have always held them, and who's really confident in their relationship with Christ. And so basically this book is just an application of those principles to the things that we're all facing right now. And it's with my good friend, Reggie Dabbs. Reggie and I have written two other books together. He's the number one public school speaker in the world. Reggie is, he travels 300 days a year for the past 30 years. He's the most famous guy that you maybe have never heard of because he's always in a public school somewhere. But I mean, every major conference you can imagine he's, you know, a speaker at. And when George Floyd, the video came out, I was sitting in the bed with my wife and we had been talking through some things over the, the, the course of time. And that's when it all came to a head for me of who I thought I was versus what I was really doing, what I was really speaking into the space. Um, and I, I cried when he, when he called out for his mama, I just, I, I cried. Um, and I understand everyone won't connect that moment to race, mm-hmm. but again, I was beginning to think more on, on a systemic level than just individual responsibility. What is my responsibility here? What can I be blamed for or not blamed for? I realized the truth is I've been worried all this time about not doing something wrong, but I'm doing nothing at all. I'm just a guy on the sideline. And so I immediately ordered about 10 books and began reading uh, black authors who I should have been reading the whole time. And, uh, and then the next day I called my friend Reggie and we've been friends for so long, written two books together, shared stages together. And I said, Reg, can I ask you some questions? And he was like, yeah, I mean, he was the, you know, he's not his job to educate all the white people of the world. I, like I said, all the caveats, I was like, man, what's it like to be a black man in America? I've never asked you. And I thought he'd hesitate. And he said, when my son was learning how to drive, the first thing I taught him was to take his wallet out, put it in the seat next to him. If he gets pulled over, to roll down all four windows, turn on the dome light, and put his hands at 10 and 2 in the wheel. He said, I taught him that before I taught him to put on his seatbelt. Hmm. And it was like a, much like everything in the Enneagram or anything else, it was like, oh my goodness, I've been missing this this whole time. Uh, that his experience, if nothing else, whatever we take away from that, this is we don't indict all police as bad apples and all the things. That's really not what this is about. If nothing else, my friend has had a different experience in America. I've been right next to him the whole time, and that was not his only story or other people we interviewed for the book that I have never asked. 
And he said, John, what we really need is white leaders, pastors, not cheering us from the sidelines on this. And Reggie's never really spoken out about race. And he says in the book, I'm the first guy that asked him. I was the first guy. Hmm. And that's not some look at, that's tragic. That shouldn't be like a, I'm not saying that to elevate myself in that, but just listening to his story. And so we begin a journey, uh, not necessarily knowing it's going to lead to a book. And every chapter opens up with conversations we had, real conversations and dialogue. And basically, we overlay recovery principles to this topic. And it gets all the way into white nationalism and where we are in our current political climate. But it's more about, and it's a big question we ask, when was the last time you changed your mind about anything? Mm-hmm. Can you think of a time you changed your mind about anything? I mean, a menu order, anything at all. And if like your life is characterized by thinking that not having ever a changed mind is a good thing, then you're missing the literal definition in the Greek of the word repentance, which is the the turning of one's mind. And we begin to just sort of unravel what those things are in an invitational way. And I tell my own journey through pride and being a Pharisee and all these things. And Reggie tells his story. So it's a lot of just sharing and inviting. And the whole idea is, hey, when we get to step four, what we say is that this nation is taking an inventory on race right now. And many people in the church, myself included in my past, were standing on the sidelines throwing rocks at this. We're not engaging in this because we're too insulted by the idea that we might be indicted as wrong. But the entire gospel begins with the good news that I'm wrong. Like that's actually great news. So we kind of go, what do we really believe about this gospel thing that we're spending so much time talking about? And that's what recovery and that's what Enneagram did for me is go, oh, it's okay that I'm broken. That's actually been the case the whole time I was fooling mm-hmm. myself. I'm actually more free when I invite God into the broken places, especially when I can name them and I can understand them. So I'm, it's a different journey. And that caused my eyes to be open to go, hey, maybe I'm broken here. Now, I'm way worse than a racist. If whatever term we're going to use, like, I'm way worse than that. That's okay. I've already admitted that. Now, what am I missing? What kind of listen? So the inventory we take is we go deep. That history teacher comes out. We go deep into American history and church history all the way up to present with the the understanding that hopefully the first couple chapters have been like steps one, two, and three. A little bit for where we are, here's where we get insulted, here's the hot button terms. What do we really believe about this gospel thing? And we may not be able to end racism in the world, but we should believe that Christ does not want it among his people. And if we hear this from white Christians a lot, like, oh, it's always going to be here. Racism is always going to be around. And we're going, guys, that's a pretty non-heroic view of what Christ wants to do. We wouldn't tolerate a lot of other things among us, but maybe we can move forward with this and see a change among God's people, and maybe that'll spread to others as well. So here's a question I've, I've actually thought a lot about, and I don't want to assign, as I think some people do, too much um, weight of wisdom to the Enneagram. Right. Like yeah, it's just yeah. a tool, man. That's sure. like, you know, yeah. it doesn't decode the right. deepest mystery of the human soul or anything else <laughs> like that. I'm always trying to talk people off of that ledge. But I have wondered to myself how the Enneagram could inform and help the conversation between black and white people around the issue of racism, if it has anything to say at all. I mean, I don't want to say I have an answer, but. What do you think? Because you're more schooled in it than I am. Well, I, I don't know. Um, you know, we, when we were writing, and we say this kind of in our introduction, and this is a hard maybe pill to swallow, but 
we're writing to black and white Christians and to anyone who wants to read, but we make it plain like, hey, it's going to be white Christians' issues we're going to deal with more because our assumption is a lot of our black brothers and sisters are already at this table waiting for us to join them. So we're going to try to unravel a lot of things that we see in our own experiences. So I don't know, you know, for me, I never feel comfortable saying what someone else, I mean, again, it's a tall order to tell someone else to be humble, for example. You know, if I'm not being that in myself, then, you know, I have to always look at what is happening to me. So I think what we can say is for the individual, and I, yes, I believe to answer your question, it would work no matter, regardless of your ethnicity. But it could be a distraction for a lot. I think that, that a lot of people use any excuse to not engage, especially a topic like this, especially when we're all right now so full of anxiety over a lot of other things. It's like, man, I just want to break from this. And, and I would encourage people with that, that this has been more liberating than it has been heavy uh, to go, oh, phew, finally, you know. Uh, you know, we did an interview the other day and the guy said, you know, this is a minefield for all, for me as a white guy. Like, I'm grateful you've given us a path, you know, to at least try to start walking this uh, because it, 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 it's the same reason you don't go to recovery. You don't go to recovery until it's bad enough or until you recognize your brokenness and you want to change. Everybody needs it. It's not a question of who needs it. It's just, again, it's another tool. Like you said, it's not a thing. It's not a magic mm-hmm. pill. I mean, it's just another way to, you know, understand the tools that are yeah. offered to you. So, but yeah, I think it could make a difference, but I, I just think everyone has to think about where it starts with themselves. So I, th- I had an experience once that was interesting. Um, I was leading a conference and we had people break out into sort of dyads, two people talking with each other and um there was a black man in i'd say in his 50s and a younger white man maybe in his late 20s right and uh they were both twos on the enneagram okay and they began talking to each other about their life experience as twos Right now, at the end of the conference, what was so interesting was is that this younger white guy was from a very small town in Arkansas. Now, and self-admittedly grew up in a racist, you know, kind of environment. Right, and he said, "What was so powerful today was beyond the talk, the conversation of race. I finally understood that he and I had more in common." as twos on the Enneagram, then we didn't as a black and a white man. Now, I'm not saying that the issue of race wasn't terribly important in that context, but was the insight was kind of revelatory for me. Like, for them to talk about their inner terrain and to see the similarities between each other would have been an interesting exercise prior to a conversation perhaps around race. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, in other words, it's like, oh, wait a minute. You see the world through the same lens that I do. You experience life in similar ways to the way that I do. And I'm not saying that that levels the playing field or that, you know, know, in some Pollyannish way, you know, kind of eliminates the problems of systemic racism. But what I am saying was it, it, as an exercise, it helped them to see each other more deeply beyond um, what people tend to get boxed into. 
Does that does that make sense? Yeah, and that yeah. was how I thought. Oh, maybe the enneagram is sort of a, in a little way, perhaps helpful in in possibly in that conversation. Oh, I think any tool. I mean, it creates a, a common point of origin for the conversation. Uh, it's going to go different places, but they can at least come together. You know, some the argument against the conversation on race at all in the Christian world is, oh, we're all one race, and this divides, and this distracts, right, and right. all those things, which someone just posted a comment on one of our YouTube videos of that, which is the exact thing we go through over and over again in the book to deal with. Yes, there is one race, human race, and many ethnicities and all those things, but it's a smokescreen to not deal with listening uh, often. That's what it was f- probably for me in my early days of this. Um, Finding the common points of origin, and for me, whether it was the Enneagram or not, because you know Reggie, my co-author, is he's a nine, and he just discovered that. Like you know, I, you know, I made him take a test, <laughs> and um, he it, it wasn't necessarily who we were on the Enneagram. Again, that's just the tool, but we found a common point, and it was in our friendship and in our experiences to start somewhere. And I think the Enneagram could be a beautiful place for that, especially when you see the world. Uh, in, in a unique way that you thought was completely yours. And you mm. find out, oh, mm. there are others who have a, a similar uniqueness. <laughs> and, you know, that, that could be a great way to build relationships. And that's what we're all about. I mean, we need to be building relationships. We're not stopping to divide ourselves among race. The whole point is the unity. But without an inventory, without looking back, without saying this is where I, I haven't seen this rightly, then I can't move forward. So removing the stinger from the inventory and going, no, this is a good process. And whatever you use, this is a good process. Let's go through it so that the other side can look different. Mm. Well, I love that a loyalist has written a book about race uh, in America and the church, right? The challenges that that face us uh, and the opportunities that, that face us as well. So thank you so much for writing it, you know, and, and, putting it out into the world as a, an important part of the ongoing conversation that needs to be had, right? Needs to be had. Um, I'm joined by John Driver, author of Not So Black and White, or I should say co-author of Not So Black and White, Invitations to Honest Conversations About Race and Faith. It's been rich, man. Mm-hmm. Been rich. And I've learned a lot more about sixes today and the gift that they bring. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever met a six writer yet. Yeah, not that I know of. I mean, I meet a lot of ones. I, I meet a, a good number of threes. Oh my gosh, I meet a lot of threes. Uh, fours write a particular style of which is a little bit, little bit different. But anyway, so I'm really glad to to have you here. How do people learn more about what you're doing and how they can follow you? The website for the book. I yes. would I would need to say this. Not yes. so black and white book. Dot com. Right. So make sure you put the book in, notsoblackandwhitebook.com. And um, we're excited about that. You can, you can check it out and begin reading on that site. And there's some videos there, different ways to engage this conversation. Fantastic. Hey, Typology Tribe, uh, remember these words. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. May you have rest. Until next time.